Well, man, good to see you all. Hope you're doing well. We're in uh, John chapter 6, as you know. Verse 22 is where I want to begin. As we begin this, I want to make a couple of introductory comments. Uh, Number one, uh, remember often how Jesus teaches. He takes a... um, a common idea, common term, a common part of life. Uh, For example, you might remember with Nicodemus, he's trying to get Nicodemus to understand if he's really to understand what's going on and that the kingdom truth that he represents, he's got to be born again. For the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter four, he speaks of to her as a Samaritan, I offer you living water. And, of course, she's thinking temporally, and Jesus wants her to think eternally and, uh, and spiritually. And with the disciples who are, you know, hungry, he, he says, I offer you food that's eternal food. We just finished an earlier part of chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000. And that's the context for what Jesus is about to teach here. I am the bread of life. And so he's taking something that's temporal and physical and trying to teach something that is eternal and spiritual. And so that's a very normal, typical way in which Jesus teaches. The other comment I want to make by way of introduction, and this is a little controversial, this chapter, this section of chapter six, which we started studying last week and which uh, we will probably get close to finishing this week, is the central passage for the Roman Catholic Church in teaching transubstantiation, teaching that when the Eucharist, that's the Lord's table, Lord's Supper, communion, whatever your tradition calls it, when the priest says the prayer of consecration, the bread becomes the literal body of Christ, and the wine, or whatever, again, grape juice or whatever is used, uh, becomes the little blood of Christ. So uh, that transubstantiation, the substance is transformed. That is the bedrock, probably the most important practical aspect of Roman Catholicism. That's why the Roman Catholic, the, the typical faithful Roman Catholic will go to a mass at least once a week. In some cases, they'll go every day. Very, very faithful Roman Catholics because they believe that Jesus is being re-sacrificed every time the Mass is said. Now, I don't want to get into the the controversies and theological differences between the various Christian traditions, but I say this because we are going to be getting into that passage. And if you do not understand it the way Jesus teaches, figuratively, using metaphors, using figures of speech, you must be born again. I am... I offer, you, I offer you eternal water to the woman at the well. I offer you eternal food. I mean, these things, that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. Then you kind of get to the idea, well, then we must eat Jesus' body and drink Jesus' blood. And that's not what he's saying. He's speaking figuratively. So I'm saying all that by, by way of introduction. And you're, you're going to see, and I'm going to try to stay away from the controversy, but you're going to see why the Roman Catholic Church has bought into this and why it is so central to their teaching. All right, with those introductory comments, look at verse 22 through 24. 
here again is just one of the little pieces of evidence of John being a witness to this. And he tells us just some historical things. Verse 22, on the next day would be the day after the feeding of 5,000 and Jesus walking on water, which is what we studied last week. The crowd that remained on the other side of the sea, meaning those who stayed near Bethsaida, where Jesus had fed the 5,000, saw that there had only been one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias, now you can look in one of your maps, the one on page five would be a good place, but Tiberias is that major city on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. So people are coming from Tiberias to where Jesus had that eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So that created a lot of people. Oh, we want to go see this. We want to go see Jesus. So now crowds are coming from Tiberias. Verse 24. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. Remember, Capernaum is on the north, kind of the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. That was the home base for Jesus ministry and operation in Galilee. All John is doing is telling us that a lot of people are fascinated by what Jesus is doing, and they're coming to Capernaum, where Jesus is located. That's kind of his headquarters. All right, now, just that's just a geography and the history of this. Now, verse 25, through the next section, through verse 31, they pose three questions to Jesus. Make sure you see the clarity of these three questions, because they heighten what these people are really interested in, and as Jesus answers, what he is really interested in. Now, I want to say something again. These are typical human beings, in a way, just like you and me. They're focused on the temporal, that means in time, and they're focused on the physical. Jesus is interested in the eternal and the spiritual. So they come to him, the crowds that had been a part of the feeding of the 5,000, the crowds that had come from Tiberias, and they ask him the first question, Rabbi, remember that means teacher, when did you come here? First question, simple question. Jesus answered, verse 26, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Of course, the Lord is referring to the feeding of the 5,000, but the Lord is also, in a piercing and penetrating way, reading correctly, understanding profoundly what their motives are. What are they seeking? a bread king. They're seeking someone who will fill their bellies, someone who continue to do these fantastic miracles. So the Lord's response to their question, when did you come here? Jesus answers in a way that's provocative, that's confrontational, and say, you people really aren't seeking me because I am the Messiah of Israel, your Messiah, your king, your savior, you're seeking me because they filled your bellies. 
So again, you see this eternal spiritual versus physical temporal. This asks, this leads to the Lord continuing his response in verse 27. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For one him God the Father has set his seal. I want to say a couple of things about verse 27. So Jesus, again, now this should be getting rather clear to you because this is the way Jesus is teaching. He's taking something that's temporal and physical. Do not labor for food that perishes, and but for the food that endures to eternal life. Now that's moving people, trying to move these crowds from thinking about physical and temporal things to thinking about eternal and spiritual things. And so he's not talking about literal eating. He's talking about figuratively, metaphorically, eternal things, which the Son of Man gives to you, can give to you. Now remember, Son of Man is one of the messianic titles. That it goes back to Daniel 7, 13, which we've talked about that many times. So again, what is Jesus trying to do as he's responding to a simple question? Getting these crowds to stop thinking about a bread king who will just fill their bellies to their real spiritual and eternal need. And so the Lord is doing that. Are they getting the picture? I want to make one more comment about verse 27, for we have somewhat of an unusual comment by Jesus. For on him, meaning the Son of Man, the Father has set his seal. The Lord Jesus doesn't usually talk like that. that that's not a common uh, phrase or metaphor or figure that he talks about. So what does he mean by that? Well, everyone hearing his, his voice on that day would have understood what he meant. For you and me, it's not as easy to understand. But in the ancient world, any, anything that you owned or very important documents that you wanted to send to someone, or even things like deeds, deed to a piece of property, a mortgage, which was possible to take out a mortgage and a piece of property in the ancient world. Anyway, whatever that was, it would have a seal on it. And that seal indicated ownership. It indicated security. It indicated authenticity. So what's Jesus saying? The Son of Man will give to you from him, the Son of Man. The Father has set his seal. Here again, what we saw in chapter 5, Jesus is expressing this relationship between Father and Son. The Father has put his seal of authority, his seal of authenticity, his seal of ownership, his seal of security. All of those different terms are what seal meant in the ancient world. So Jesus again is saying, I am not acting on my own here. Now, whether they understood all of that is not the point. Jesus is communicating, I'm going to say this about the ninth time, eternal spiritual truth to people who are thinking temporally and physically. This causes them to ask a second question. That would be in verse 28. Then they said to him, 
what must we do to be doing the works of God? Now, why are they asking that question? Because Jesus in verse 27, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures. So they're asking him, explain that to us. What must we do? What kind of labor are you talking about? What does God require of us? What does the Father require of us? So this is really quite important. They're beginning to understand that Jesus is talking about something much more important than just the next loaf of bread they're going to eat. He has been talking about eternal things spiritual things. And their question, question number two, they're getting it. So let's paraphrase verse 28 in this way. Okay, Jesus, what does God require of us? What must we do? So the Lord's answer, this is the work of God. So labor, verse 27, do, verse 28, Verse 29, the work of God, what does God require? Faith, that you believe in him who has been, whom he has sent, meaning me, Jesus. So this is really, this is remarkable how the Lord Jesus has successfully moved these crowds from thinking about their belly and the next loaf of bread they're going to eat, to now thinking about eternal things. And so what does God require? That you believe. Not that you work, not that you earn, not that you merit, but that you have faith, that you believe. Verse 30, the third question. Then they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you. So now their question, uh, number three, is moving again up, ratcheting it up a little bit, and they're in effect saying, do something additionally that's going to cause us to believe. So how's the Lord Jesus going to deal with this? Because this is, he's at this crucial apex this, this crucial dividing point. He's got these people, so to speak, in the palm of his hand. So they're responding, okay, what sign do you do that we might, that we might see and believe? So they ask, as a part of that, what work do you perform? Which is a disturbing rhetorical question, but essentially... They're asking for more evidence. They're asking for more specific, can I use a 21st century term, more specific documentation to prove who he is. So the Lord is not not offended by this. The Lord is not going to chastise them. He now moves to taking the feeding of the 5,000. They're seeking a bread king as we saw in in verse 26, when Jesus says, what you're really seeking is somebody's going to feed your belly, to now beginning 
to talk about himself being the bread of life. Here's the documentation. Here's the proof. Verse 31. So he takes them all the way back to the Old Testament. Takes them all the way back to the wilderness wandering of 40 years before they entered the promised land. Verse 31. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Quote, quoting from Psalm 78, which is a really important psalm. It's a messianic psalm. Remember, we talked about messianic psalms when we did that, that short little segment on, on a bunch of the psalms. And we looked at Psalm 2 as one of those messianic psalms. This is one of those messianic psalms. So quoting from that is extremely important because it isn't just going back and looking at the material in Exodus or the wilderness wanderings. There's a quotation from a messianic psalm, the messianic age, the messianic era. Then Jesus said, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Let me stop there before the crowds respond in verse 34. Now, I'm sure it is, it is true for every one of you listening here to my voice that Jesus is speaking in figurative language here. He's moving them from thinking about the manna that God supernaturally provided for the children of Israel for those 40 years during the wilderness wanderings to another supernatural provision of God. And this is that supernatural provision of true bread that comes from heaven. But it's a metaphor. It's a figure of speech for the bread, verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to you. Jesus is the true bread. Jesus is the true Torah, the true law. Jesus is what it is all about. So you're answering me the question, asking me the question, what, what, will, what sign will you perform for us? I don't need to perform any more signs. Draw the analogy between the manna in the wilderness that God provides for physical life with the true bread that God provides for eternal life. I am that bread, which causes Jesus to say in verse 35, I am the bread of life. So they respond when they heard Jesus say this in verse 34, Sir, give us this bread always. This is exact. Think, think of this. Think now. This is exactly what the woman at the well in Samaria said. You're speaking of water that you can give me, and I'll never have to draw water from this. Lord, give me this water. Now, Jesus had to move the woman at the Samaritan well from thinking about physical, temporal things, water that she needs every day to live, to eternal water that Christ offers her through faith. Jesus doing the same thing here. He's trying to get these people to think about eternal spiritual thing, things using the metaphor, the figure of speech, 
I am the bread of life. The bread that comes down from heaven, the true bread that gives you eternal life, I'm here. I am that one. Now, before we move on, let me stop there. I've tried to carefully, hopefully successfully, but carefully go through the three questions that the crowds ask Jesus and how Jesus so masterfully moves these crowd, this crowd of people from thinking about physical, temporal things to thinking about eternal, spiritual things. And he's on the cusp of some profound words that he wants to say in the remaining verses uh, through verse 40. Any questions? Everybody with me? Yeah, I have a question. Um, speaking of verse 40, could you connect um, believe in verse 29 to 40? It says looks on and believes in. Obviously, this is a, a reference to faith. Um, yes. Put a finer uh, point on on those. Is what what are the uh, words? What's the connotation? I'm trying to um, go a little bit deeper there. Well, um, in in verse 28, uh, rather uh, verse 29, 29, you must believe in him who ha- whom he has sent. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, important. And this is always the case, Russ, but belief or faith has an object and it has content. Do you understand what I mean by those two words? Absolutely. It it has an object and then it has content. There is something about that object that you must believe. You you must Mm -hmm. affirm. You must uh, uh, have confidence and trust in. He's not saying when he says believe in me. He's not saying simply trust what I have uh, said, right? He's saying something that's more holistic, um, that they're not really going beyond here, but he's saying, you know, believe in, um, yeah, for a, in artful form, my philosophy, my being, my existence, my, you know, the, the, the content that you're describing, that there's... Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, he's not asking them, the crowds here, to believe in a systematic theology presentation of Jesus. (laughs) You know, he is focusing on one thing here, Mm -hmm. and it is, I am the bread of life. What life? Eternal life. Believe in me as the source, not only of physical life, but of eternal life. Now, he's going to explain to them, and this is one of the things that the Gospels do, explaining the the step-by-step progression that the Lord Jesus takes people through to get to the point where they do completely put their faith and trust in him. Russ, it's exactly the same thing that happened to you when you put your faith in Christ whenever that was in your life. It's a little child. It's an old. It's a. It's an adult. It's an older person under deathbed or whatever. There, they, they must believe that there is a person named Jesus who lived two thousand years ago, whose death, burial, and resurrection solves their sin problem. Jesus is trying to get them to do just what God was trying to get ancient Israel to do. Uh-huh. Everything you do, I want you to think about me. I am the one who's taking care of your sin problem through the atoning work 
of your sacrifices. Jesus is trying to get Israel to see him as their Messiah, who is going to go to a cross and die for them. But right now, he's using these, these figurative expressions to get people to think about eternal spiritual things, and only the Father who has sent me can solve those problems for you. And I'm the vehicle through which the Father is going to solve those problems. That's correct. So you, so you have, so looking is not an observation concept. It is a, um, it's directional to say, cast your faith in this direction. Look to like, look to the yeah. mechanic to fix your car. Well, yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not a blind leap of faith. Mm -hmm. Well, I sure, I sure hope this is, I'm, <laughs> this is a risk here. I, I'm not so sure about this, but I'm mm -hmm. going to leap. That's no, Jesus, Jesus is not asking these people to take a blind leap. Mm -hmm. He's trying to connect something they very familiar with. The wilderness wanderings and the manna that God provided to them that sustained life. Their physical life was sustained for 40 years by the wilderness. Jesus is trying to get, and again, think, think of the way I put this about nine or ten times. Jesus is trying to get them to think. Not a doubt, just physical and temporal things, because he just met that need when he gave them food up on Mount, the mount outside of Bethsaida. He's trying to get them to think about eternal spiritual things. I'm the only one, this is Jesus speaking, I'm the only one that can meet that need you have. Just like the woman at the well in Samaria. She got it. And she went and told the people at the village, and they all came out. And Jesus had, it was a great revival in that little Samaritan community. Jesus is trying to do the same thing with these people. So let's move on to verse 35. I already read this, but I'll read it again. So Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Now that statement is in the context of the feeding of the 5,000 and the response of the crowds who follow Jesus to Capernaum and ask him those three questions that he has answered, and we've just gone over those. So this isn't said, this, this, this said in a context that you've got to understand. I am the bread of life. Okay, now let's take that apart. First of all, I am is a go of me. We've talked about that a lot. That is part of a title for God, Yahweh. So I am, if you just say alone, I am, Jesus will say that in John 8, 58, it's a declaration of his, of his being the Jehovah, the Yahweh of the Old Testament, the self-sufficient, self-existent God. But I am the bread of life. What life? Well, not physical life, because that's not what he's been talking about. He's trying to move these people from thinking about temporal physical things to spiritual eternal things. So the life he's talking about is eternal life, not just the life that will sustain you as bread does, as dried fish does, which is what he fed them up near on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, feeding 5,000. But he's talking about eternal life. So Yahweh yielding the source of eternal life. I am that one. Isaiah 55, 11 is perhaps what he has in mind here. 
Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What does Jesus mean there? You and I, I believe, this is true, everyone that's listening to my voice has put your faith in Christ. Uh, are you going to have dinner tonight? Are you going to go get a drink of water in the middle of the afternoon because you're thirsty? Of course you will, because you have that ongoing physical need to sustain life. But Jesus offers, as Yahweh, the bread that provides eternal life, you will no longer hunger or thirst. Your spiritual quest, your spiritual quest for meaning and purpose, your spiritual quest to get your sin problem forever solved resides with me. So again, Jesus is speaking figuratively. Verse 37, all, but, uh, excuse me, verse 36, but I said to you that you've seen me and you do not believe. So Jesus is still dealing. The reality is, most of them are still not responding in faith. They're still seeking the bread king, who's going to give them something to eat, and then they'll be, they'll be satisfied. They just like the dog and pony show. But Jesus continues, all that, in verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So Jesus, this is this complicated theology of salvation, but what is important for you and me to understand, if you belong to Jesus, he will keep you. He will enable you to persevere. He will never cast you out. That's the Apostle Paul's discussion at the end of Romans chapter 8. Nothing can ever separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And he goes through all of that long list of extremes at the end of Romans 8. Now, he continues to further explain this in verse 38. For I have come down from heaven. He has said that over and over and over again so far in our study. He says it here again. Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's again, John 5, 19 through 24, which we studied a couple of weeks ago. This remarkable interdependent, mutual honor, mutual love, of the Father and the Son. The Son does not act independent of the Father. That's all he's saying. And verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given to me, but raise it up on the last day. And that is another way of expressing the truth of the resurrection. That this persevering and, and keeping what Jesus had said. He'll never cast out. As a matter of fact, he will raise us up on the last day. That is the truth and the promise of the resurrection. The evidence that Jesus will keep us to the end is that he's going to raise us up on the last day, the resurrection. That's what 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, among many other places, is teaching us. Now, the conclusion to all of this is in verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life and will raise him up on the last day. 
So there you have the four components of what Jesus means, I am the bread of life. I've come down from the Father. I've come down from heaven. I'm doing the Father's will. I do not act independent of him. What is the Father's will? That you look on the Son, believe on the Son, and the result is eternal life. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ produces the promise of eternal life and the guarantee of the resurrection. So you have those four components, looks on the Son and believes in him. There, there is my response to Russ's question a little bit ago. This isn't a blind leap of faith. This is, a, this is faith in a person, a faith in a person that has, that belief has content, it, it has meaning to it, and you respond in faith, and the result is it's guaranteed is the promise of eternal life and the promise of the resurrection. So you see what Jesus is doing here. Again, I'm going to have used this, this way of describing it now about nine or ten times. He has moved these crowds now from thinking about temporal and temporal and physical things, getting enough stuff to feed the belly, to thinking about spiritual eternal things that only are resolved and only are fulfilled, find their fulfillment in him who was sent by the Father, and he does the will of the Father. And what is the will of the Father? That you will have eternal life by putting your faith, by putting your faith in my Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's, it's, it's absolutely majestic. This is a marvelous, marvelous demonstration of the teaching strategy of Jesus Christ. And over and over and over again in the Gospel of John, we've seen this, moving people from thinking about just temporal, physical things to thinking about spiritual, eternal things. And in 2020, in the middle of the summer, that's still what God wants us to do. I'm, I'm preaching a series in my church right now on Jesus. It was just happened to be doing it, but it's a five-part series, and there's been a number of people responding to this, and a lot of people coming, uh, both in terms of uh, it being streamed, but also coming to the building. And uh, we've been praying for a particular couple. They're not married. They're both avowed atheists, but they're going through incredibly difficult times. I just got an email this morning. They both have agreed to come. So this coming Sunday, it, 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 I'm going to be really, I'd invite you to pray with me about this. I'm, I'm preaching on the deity of Jesus. What are the claims of Christ? And these people who are atheists, they're about, she says, I'm a scientist. I never believed in spiritual things. But this is exactly what the Lord Jesus wants to do this Sunday morning, is move this lady who calls herself a scientist, she's an atheist, from thinking about physical and, and temporal things to thinking about eternal and, and spiritual things. Only God's Holy Spirit's going to accomplish that. So what Jesus did for these crowds is stay, still the same thing we do today. As God gives us opportunity to get people to think about eternal spiritual things. 
And when you start thinking about that, that's what this lady is doing because she's in crisis. She's lost so much and she's trying to figure out, isn't there another answer to all of the struggles I'm having? Answer, her friend who's a member of our church, her friend is saying the answer is Jesus. And she keeps pushing back. But it is an absolute miracle that she and her partner have agreed to come to church this Sunday. I hope they honor that and do indeed come. But it will only be the Spirit of God that's going to move them to both think about eternal spiritual things. And when you start thinking about eternal spiritual things, only Jesus, only Jesus offers the answer to that. All right. Now, Jim. We're not yeah. into controversial stuff yet, but we're about to get there. <laughs> yeah, Jim. Yes, sir. Can you hear me? Yes. Um, I, you know, it's it's so beautiful to see Christ be so patient uh, with these people who eventually will live and die for him. And I think it's important, too, that maybe the application and, and like your comments on this, working with this, uh, you know, this couple, that th they have to come at their own pace and not at, as how we would steer them or direct them, but as God reveals himself uh, to them. Um, and it's, I think, don't you think that's important? Sometimes we get impatient with ourselves and we need to, think of how Christ was patient uh, and, with and the disciples and, moves and he loves them. Yep. Moves people along step by step. I mean, I, yeah. my preference is and say you, you people, will you please see the trip? That is not the way to do it. <laughs> Jesus never does that. <laughs> and it's that step yes. by step. He knows exactly. He knows exactly how to do it. That's why I love the Gospel of John and for a lot of reasons, but one of them is you see the teaching strategy of Jesus. And you just see how he is moving people step by step yeah. to think about eternal spiritual things. And when you start thinking about eternal spiritual things, that's when Jesus comes up because he mm -hmm. offers a solution to that. Masterfully, masterfully done. Thank you. All right. I was hoping somehow the Lord would come or it would take us the whole time and I wouldn't have to get into this, but here we go. <laughs> now the controversial part. Verse 41. Okay, now, if you, again, I'm going to say this one more time. Remember, the context for chapter 6 is the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking on water, and then this dialogue between the crowds who were fed it, feeding 5,000 others from Tiberias who've heard about this miracle and so on. Now, now the response, but John doesn't focus on the response of the people. He focuses on the response of the leadership. Verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him. Now remember, uh, I want to keep reminding you of this, but it's important to always keep that in mind. When John uses the phrase, the Jews, this isn't a broad statement of all the Jews. This is his statement, his phrase, I should say, of the leadership. This is, we're not sure if these are Pharisees from Jerusalem or these are the Pharisaic leaders of the synagogue in Capernaum. That's my opinion. 
They probably, this is probably who they are. These are the leaders of the synagogue in Capernaum. And so the Jews grumbled because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They, when, when they are grumbling, they understand exactly what Jesus is saying. They understand that this is what Isaiah talked about in chapter 55 and many other places. They understand what Jesus is claiming. They understand whom Jesus is claiming to be. And so they're grumbling. Why? Verse 42. Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? See, Capernaum is on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. You can see that on your map on page five, just a little bit to the west of Capernaum is Nazareth. It's on a, it's on a ridge. It's, it's not a terribly significant town. But so the people from Capernaum would know people from Nazareth. And so they're saying, wait a minute. This is Joseph's son. We know his mom and dad. How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Now, in a sense, at the temporal, physical level, those questions make sense. But remember, Jesus is not only human, he's also divine. He's the God-man, which is what we have been seeing Jesus doing throughout this book. So Jesus, in verse 43, answers them. Do not grumble among yourselves. Verse 44. No one can come to me, literally in the Greek, no one is able to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Verse 45 and 46 are about to explain what he means by draws him. But it also helps us to understand and I'm going to say this in a way that I hope is not controversial, but salvation is supernatural. Salvation is the supernatural work of God the Holy Spirit in an unbeliever's life where they are regenerated. They are born again. And Jesus is saying, again, now please think about John chapter 5, verse 19 through 24. The Father and the Son do not act independent of one another. So part of this interdependence is the Father drawing unbelievers to Jesus. We're going to learn later on in this book, the Father drawing unbelievers to Jesus by means of the Holy Spirit. Jesus isn't getting into all that detail at this point. He's just saying again, explaining again, no one is able to come to me in faith and believe and receive the gift of eternal life without the Father drawing them. And I will raise them up on the last day, which is what we had read about in the previous paragraph. So Jesus is repeating what he had said to the crowds about his relationship to the Father, about his persevering, keeping, and he'll raise them up in the last day. Verse 45. Now, again, as I said, well, Jesus now wants to explain this, and he explains it in verse 45 and 46. It is written in the prophets, and 
they will all be taught by God. That's Isaiah 54, verse 13. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone who has seen the Father except he is from God. He has seen the Father. So Jesus, this is really interesting. How does the Father draw, again, we'll learn later on in the book through the Holy Spirit, how does the Father draw people to the Son? Through his word. That's why Jesus quotes from Isaiah 54, 13. And they will all be taught by God. How are you taught by God? Through God's word, through his revelation. And so Jesus is explaining, how does God draw people to the Son? Excuse me, how does the Father draw people to the Son? We'll learn later on through the Spirit, through his word, that the Spirit inspired. And so you just see, this is not new truth for you and me. This is, we already know this. Oh yeah, that's right. That's how I came to faith in Christ. That's right. That's, that's how I came to understand this. And so it's the same, it's the same truth that you are very familiar with. This isn't something new to you, but Jesus is speaking to these perhaps Pharisaic leaders in the synagogue at Capernaum who are grumbling in him. And Jesus is saying, um, listen, the Old Testament texts upon which you rely say you're taught by God. And those who are taught by God, the Father uses to bring themselves to me. And it's just everyone who's heard and learned from the Father, heard and learned from the Father through what? Through the Word. Through the Old Testament prophets, through Moses, through the teachings of the Old Testament comes to me. Now, not that anyone has seen the Father except he is from above. He has seen the Father, meaning me. Nobody's seen the Father, but you've heard from the Father. How? Through his word. Verse 47. Amen, amen. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Now that he has said this now several times in this chapter, so he's just reiterating what he has been saying. Now he says it to these guys. Now let's, let's just review this, this process that Jesus has used. You come to me because the Father draws you to me. How does the Father draw a person to the Son? Through his word. And it is as, as you respond to the word, you hear and learn to the word, then you respond in faith. And to put your faith in me results in eternal life. He who believes has eternal life. That is John 6, 47 is one of the most succinct verses in the whole Bible. He who believes has eternal life, period. Not he who believes and does this work and this work and this work and accomplishes this and this and this then has eternal No, he who believes has eternal life, period. It is faith in Jesus Christ that produces eternal life and nothing else. Now, this is so far, at least I hope, the way I've explained this, 
this isn't terribly difficult, what the Lord is saying here. Now he goes back to his theme. I am the bread of life. Now, I am the bread of life corresponds with who believes has eternal life. I am the bread that sustenance that produces eternal life. All right, now that's not difficult. Your fathers ate man in the wilderness and they died. We've learned that. We saw that before. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, that you may eat it and not die. I am the bread of life. This I am, verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And what I did in my Bible is I circled the word eats in verse 51 with the word believes in verse 47. Because the eat of the bread, Jesus is the bread of life, is another way of saying believe. Jesus is fleshing out the metaphor. Now, I want you to notice one more thing about the end of verse 51. The word flesh there is sarx. It's not soma. Now, that doesn't mean anything to you. But soma, S-O-M-A, is the normal Greek word for the physical body. That's not the word Jesus uses. He uses the word sarks, flesh. It's a metaphor. And here again is why it's hard to press this point, and I, I don't mean to be dogmatic here, but it's hard to press this point and make this the key to salvation is to eat of the body of Jesus, literally in the miracle of transubstantiation. Because Jesus, in this discussion, is not talking about the Lord's table. He's not talking about the Eucharist. He's not talking about communion. He's talking about salvation, and he is the bread of life, and to believe in him is what brings eternal life. And so eating is another metaphor, because he's speaking metaphorically for believing. All right, now, verse 50, what time is it? Verse 52 is the further response of these Jewish leadership, more than likely the Pharisees at the synagogue in Capernaum. But before we get into this, I want to make sure you're with me in verse 41 through 51. I'm trying to take this slow, going step by step. Is everybody with me? Any, any questions? Okay, now, the, the, the leadership is not going to let Jesus off. They're going to ask him additionally. Then the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us flesh to eat? What are they really asking? Explain this metaphor. Explain the figurative language you're using here. So Jesus, verse 53, does that. Amen, amen. Truly, truly, I say to you, Again, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink the, his blood, you have no life. There is no life in you. Okay, now again, <laughs> think of the whole context of everything Jesus has been saying. Does eat and drink, is that literal or is that figurative? 
does that go along? So what I did in my Bible, as I explained earlier, the term eat in verse uh, 53 and drink in verse 53, I, I, I circle back and draw a circle around believe. It's a response of faith. Jesus, I am the bread of life. I have come down from heaven, and you eat of this bread, you get eternal life, and I will raise you up on the last day. That's what he's been saying. He's not talking about communion. He's not talking about the Eucharist. He's talking about fleshing out in response to their question, explain this metaphor to us. And so whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Okay, he's been saying this all along, but he's fleshing out the metaphor. It's the same. He said it over. He said it three times so far, and he says it again. You have eternal life, and you put your faith in me. Now he's fleshing out the metaphor. I'm the bread of life. To eat and drink brings eternal life, and I'll raise you up in the last day. Verse 56, or sorry, 55. For my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And the living Father, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread your fathers ate and died, the manna in the wilderness. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And so, one more time, Jesus keeps restating over and over and over again this figure of speech. I am the bread of life. Just like he said to the Samaritan woman, I can offer you uh, eternal water. You don't ever have to drink again. What does that mean? It doesn't mean literally, physically. It means eternally, spiritually. And so that's what Jesus is saying. Respond to me in faith. And the metaphor is I'm the bread of life. The metaphor is to eat and drink because I offer eternal life. And so, again, this, this complicated discussion that the Lord Jesus has had comes back to this fundamental bottom line truth. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll have eternal life. All right. I have a question. Please. Okay. I'm just in, in reading this again. How can you, when Jesus says, for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. How are the Jews to understand that that's a metaphor rather than that he's talking about real flesh and real blood? Well, um, I mean, we, we understand, but it looks to me like that they're still going to concentrate on the physical aspect of flesh and blood. So I, I'm just asking what, what your take is on that. Well, I mean, that's, that is the whole point, John. A metaphor like being born again, John chapter 3, a metaphor, I can offer you eternal water, John uh, chapter 4. Here, I am the bread of life, John chapter 6. Is that to be understood literally as literal bread? Or is it to be understood figuratively? And I think you are, you're absolutely correct. 
for some people, if all you do and all you are able to do and all you're willing to do is see that at a physical, temporal level, then you're going to conclude, I've got to eat Jesus' body and I've got to drink Jesus' blood. Why didn't it? But all along, and and, and this this is so crucial, all along throughout this chapter, he had been trying to move them from the physical and temporal. I fed thousands of you on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee. I fed thousands of you miraculously, and I satisfied your belly. You had more than enough to eat, but I'm offering you something much more significant, something eternal and spiritual, and I am that bread, just like the woman at the well. I'm offering you something eternal. It's water that you don't even know about. You don't even understand, but I want to explain it to you. And so here he's doing the same thing to these people, trying to get them to think about not just the physical things of life where I need to eat bread and dried fish to sustain my life for another day, but tomorrow at this time I'm going to be hungry again and I've got to eat. Jesus is saying, I want you to think about your eternal and spiritual need. And the bread, the bread that you ate up on the northeast shore is not going to satisfy that. You need eternal bread. And the bread that comes down from heaven, i.e. me, Jesus, is the solution to that. And so, John, I mean, it's unpacked. And they, they are be- they, these leaders in verse 52, these leaders, that's what they're asking him. Explain this metaphor. Explain this to us. The flesh to eat. Explain to us what you mean by that. And so he does. But he he responds as he's been responding to the question figuratively and metaphorically. So, John, I mean, that's that's the crucial question. You're asking the critical question. I, I do think they are indeed struggling with the physical, temporal understanding of bread and and, 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 and something to drink. And Jesus is trying to say, as he's been teaching them using this figurative language, don't just think of your physical temporal needs, think of your eternal spiritual need. And when you think that way, I'm the only one that can offer that solution because I am the bread of life. John, I don't know how else to say it. I, okay. I have a, Thank you. I have, a, I have an input on this because I've read this before and they're on, at the end of many of these chapters in the New Testament, then there is an as many as ate tacos got something, as many as believed in him, as many as, and there's no follow-up here. Oh, okay, so uh, the crowd took him and tried to chew on his arm. There's no follow-up there that would say, okay, we understand that you mean this literally, because they didn't say there was no you know, they haven't done the Last Supper at this point. This isn't a Passover thing. It isn't in this context. So it's like, well, what would you naturally do? Okay, I believe you. So uh, uh, give me your toes. I want to chew on them, right? It's that, that there's, there's no flesh or blood at this point. So if it was literal, you would expect somebody to follow up with a, okay, I get what you're saying. Let's uh, go to dinner. 
<laughs> offer yourself up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, you're you're right in that sense. You, you almost wish that John, the writer, would mm -hmm. now. I want to explain to you what happened here. Though I want to explain to you the hundreds and hundreds of people that got it and came to faith and all that, or mm -hmm. it, that doesn't. Because all John does in verse fifty nine is tells Jesus said mm -hmm. these things in the synagogues. They taught at Capernaum. So John John doesn't explain. Now what we are going to see, we're out of time. Mm -hmm. What we are going to see next week is how the disciples respond to this, and that's in verse sixty through the end of the chapter. So the disciples do respond, and John, who is a disciple, records this for us. But it is, we, we are left, in, in a sense, we're left in the dark. We do not know how people responded. We do not know how many people did respond in faith or whatever. But this, I mean, I've said this many, many times in our study of John, there's a progressive nature to this. Progressively, more and more is being revealed. And progressively, more and more people are coming to faith. But John leaves that out. He doesn't explain this to us. He doesn't do like an evangelist where you have a professional person who counts all the people who convert. Then you publish the numbers. That's not what John does here. We don't know. We do not know, except for a few individuals here and there. We do not know how people are responding to this. Okay, now I I looked at my watch here. I better quit. This is, uh, I, I mean, I love this, man. I hope you love it as much as I do. But this is the deep stuff of Scripture. But keep coming back, as I'll say this about the 20th time, keep coming back to Christ's strategy here. He's trying to get these people to think about eternal spiritual things. And when they do, he's the only solution. And that's the same thing that's going on in 2020. All right, let me pray. And uh, we'll just continue this next week. We'll pick right up with verse 60 with the response of the disciples and their questions and so on. Father, thank you for this time together. This is hard truth here. Some difficult things in John chapter 6. But yet, if we keep the primary strategy of Jesus, his teaching strategy, we really do understand what he's trying to do. We thank you for that because fundamentally that's still the issue today, to get people to think not just about temporal, physical things, but to also think about spiritual and eternal things. And when we do, that drives them to Jesus because he's the only one that answers the challenges and the and, and the truths about eternal life. He that believes has eternal life, verse 47 taught us. That's still true today. It's not what you do. It's not what you earn. It's not what you merit. When you believe, you have eternal life. Thank you for that supreme truth of our faith. Thank you for these men. Uh, Lord, continue to be with them in the troubling, unsettling times. Give them strength of character, men of integrity, men of faith, men of God, who will represent you well. We trust each one to you. Thank you again for our time together in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. See you next week, guys.